This is where we beat news channels. <laughs> That's right. We're already more credible than the news. <laughs> I am recording, Ethan. What do you? Uh, what do you got going? What do you have to retract? All right. So we we uh, we care about our accuracy and our and our our uh, factual uh, bona fides here. So there's two things that we chatted about in previous episodes. I just wanted to straighten the the score on a little bit. Um, in one of them, I mentioned an article called The Open Door Bailout about um, positive economic effects of mass immigration. Yes, I remember that. I suggested that I remember that being written by David Brooks. It was written by Thomas Friedman. Mm. Ah, I thought it might have been written by Friedman. I've, yeah, okay. So Good correction. The other one, uh, this was when we were talking about monuments. Okay. Um, and I had made the distinction of what I call primary versus secondary virtues. Um, and Chad mentioned that our view of which virtues are primary ones have changed over time. And I kind of immediately agreed and said, yeah, you know, like bravery just used to be ranked much higher. You know, um, it was just more of a core. Bravery is just a, a good in and of itself. Brave people are, are, are virtuous. Um, but I later recalled a very ancient quote that kind of says otherwise. Um, this is uh, a Greek ruler named Aegisilus. And he wrote, he, he ruled about 400 BC. So this is a long time ago. And he wrote that if all men were just, there would be no need for valor. Hmm. Hmm. Which is pretty darn impressive. Yeah. <laughs> and is not, did not describe the world that he had to deal with very much at all, I don't think. But uh, I, I wanted to, I wanted to go push on our, on our, our, our rush to judgment there that, that this is something that changes over, over time, the primary virtue, the identification of primary virtues. Well, okay. So, so this brings up a couple of interesting uh, thoughts. Um, that uh, we could probably spend a whole episode on at some point. So I'll try to very succinctly say them. One is, um, I think it brings up to me the, the, uh, the idea that <clears throat> human um, intelligence and wisdom, maybe, maybe more so wisdom, human wisdom has not aged. Um, I think that, you know, it's very tempting for... Uh, those, you know, living at any, you know, currently, those living currently um, to look back on history and say, oh, we're so much more advanced, we're so much superior than those uninformed Neanderthals that lived back in the time of, say, Solomon or, you know, uh, Babylon or, or even preceding that time. And, um, and yet, I, you know, I think one of the things that has made the Bible relevant, whether you believe in it as a religious, you know, text or not, is that it describes human behavior and human thought very, very uh, um, accurately, uh, I think with a lot of wisdom. And it has a, a very deep understanding of, of the human heart. Um, and so, uh, so that's one of the things that I think you're illustrating with that quote that goes back, you know, millennia. Um, the second thing- I, On that point, I think we have, I think all of the inter interchange of ideas and, and the writings and, you know, and, and the, the ability we have to pass knowledge forward 
has given us some additional opportunities for wisdom. And I would say we've exploited some of those. Okay. But yeah, and they're not because we're better people. They're right. Because we're in a slightly different situation. Right. So um, the second thing that I would uh, somewhat push back a little bit on the idea that things don't change over time, that virtues don't change over time, is that I do think we see fluctuations in virtues and what is a primary virtue um, at various times and its various cultures and, um, and that kind of thing. So, so I, I still think the point was um, accurate that there were probably some cultures that, or there are still some cultures that highly value bravery and yet, um, Klingons, yeah, I think, sorry, what? Klingons, for example. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Crazy yeah. about it. I'm back in the game, guys. All right. It's <laughs> <This is> good. <laughs> no, I, and I don't think that's a temporal like shift. I think it's a cultural shift because I, I think in, in our current understanding of the world, there are cultures that value bravery over other things. And, yeah. and culturedness is one that comes up and, uh, politeness and things like that are sometimes valued very very highly um yeah yeah not in this that brings an interesting uh so i don't i don't i actually i think we may have opened the you'll have to remind me um with the quote uh a sigmund freud quote um the first person who threw an insult instead of stone built civilization wow (laughs) This is why we need a producer to look these things up and like. Uh... <laughs> no, no, no! I can't, I can't remember if I said that on the first episode. Or so not. They can show us how we're wrong in the same episode. I don't like. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, okay, All so right, why don't we get this show right. this the topic at hand? Yeah, healthcare. So, um, so Enoch, why don't you set up the propositions, and then I, I have a little to say about the propositions. Alrighty, so when I was, when I was, we all gave our ideas of um, kind of our proposals for changes to our system. And uh, when I started mine, I had the benefit of having read the other two, uh, uh, Brett's and Chad's already. And I thought, you know, I should start with the problems uh, just to provide some clarity for myself. And what I came up with was um, the, the cost of healthcare in the U.S. is unnecessarily high for all. Um, it may not be as high, it may not be 3x, but it's probably at least 2x on average. We look at other nations, we see what can be had, and we go, wow, Americans pay a lot for their healthcare. Um, I do think it's not as bad as it looks, and if you dig in the numbers, we're vindicated a little bit. But we, we pay more than we need to for the, for, for the product, for what we get. Two, that cost whatever it is, even if it were a tenth of what it is, um, it is currently unaffordable for some, and it would still be unaffordable for some if it were a tenth what it is. And so there is, uh, it simply is not provided to everybody. And that is certainly a negative outcome, regardless of whether you think people are, are, um, are, are owed healthcare or not. And finally, um, and this is a little more mine than the other folks here, but individuals in the US, I would say, do not have health freedom. Um, we are not free to maintain our bodies as we see fit. Um, access to medicines and deciding who, who they want to trust for their healthcare um, and uh, uh, equipment and so on and so forth. So th- those, are, those are what seem to me to be the top line problems. And I guess one question is, are there any others? Am I missing a huge one here? So, I, I mean, I think those capture the, the main issues with healthcare. Um, Oh, and I would say on the health freedom, 
that goes beyond just kind of my libertarian concerns. A lot of people um, would say there are point to other problems with health freedom, health freedom, like people can't choose the doctors they want, people can't self-refer, um, people are restrained by their insurance company and what you know what procedures they can have, and so th that can go a lot of directions. That one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that concerns me about our healthcare system, um, and this may or may not concern the two of you to the same degree it probably does me, is that our, our healthcare system um, is not equitable. Uh, and so <clears throat> um, there are significantly different outcomes, uh, you know, based on race, socioeconomic status, and uh, other various things, which is somewhat linked to the finances of healthcare, although not entirely linked to the finance finances of healthcare, there's a lot of other issues that impact those things as well, um, that impact inequities as well, um, or health disparities. And some of those may be uh, even um, uh, just lack of research. So, um, you know, there are, to give a, one example that's um, racially different uh, is that uh, Filipinos have 19 times the risk of, um, uh, having coccidioidomycosis. I can't believe I didn't spit that out correctly, but um, it's a fungal, you know, basically lung infection, valley fever is what's, what it's commonly caused. And we don't really know why, um, to my understanding. African-Americans have a higher risk, but not near to that degree. And so there's lots of things that we don't understand that are legitimate health disparities, not necessarily because of differences in care, but, um, but because of genetic differences that we just don't understand. There obviously are and I don't want to minimize this differences, uh, you know, in care as a result uh, uh, or health, health disparities as a result of differences in care as well. That's been well documented in the literature um, between African-Americans, lots of different studies that have looked at that. Um, but then there are things that we just don't understand. And, and if, pain management think, is one of the ones I've seen. Pain, pain right, management. pain management. And that's been demonstrated in multiple um, in multiple different uh, types of uh, settings. Um, children, adults, and and so um, that's definitely concerning. So, anyways, I would add health equity is one of the problems. Um, <clears throat> now, this is uh, particularly an interest of mine. Um, for the last few years, I've been doing presentations on um, high value care and uh, how we can um, impact uh, value um, in medicine, and of course, that would to some degree relate to the costs of medicine. Um, and this has been primarily for residents, um, and faculty. And so it's, you know, we're, we're approaching it from the standpoint of what do we actually have control over? Um, because there's, you know, many things that we don't have control over in healthcare as far as healthcare costs. Um, really quickly though, I wanted to show one of the slides that I frequently show in, um, in this presentation. So Brett, you'll have to give me, uh, rights to, to share my screen. And we probably um, should mention anew for people that. For this conversation, they might find it useful to know. Chad is a medical doctor. Yeah, yeah. I'm the director of training for for the hospital. Okay, and I am a software developer. So <laughs> I'm the bridge between the two of you. Then That's so, the, so you know, make your decide who to trust if you want. <laughs> decide who to trust. Um, 
Definitely just don't, don't just rely on the doctor here. That is definitely something I want to say. Uh, medicine and the healthcare costs are too important to be left up to just doctors. So um, uh, I did want to show this graph, um, which uh, you can see here, this is health expenditures, you know, basically from the 70s to 2014. And this compares, you know, the expenditure, the amount we, we spend versus life expectancy. Expenditures on the x-axis, life expectancy on the y and you can see we're, uh, we are spending vastly more than any other country with um, not really comparable uh, outcomes as far as um, uh, life expectancy. And you, know, you could probably graph that on so several different metrics. So I just wanted to kind of show that as something that, that um, illustrates what Ethan was talking about as far as um, the cost of healthcare. Uh, and <clears throat> um, you know, this is a very complicated topic. Uh, we probably won't do justice to it because it is so complicated. But I wanted to also um, talk briefly about one of the things that is very commonly mentioned um, in discussing about healthcare and say why should we should have a socialized system, which is um, that uh, there are um, a significant number of, and you'll hear the, the uh, phrase, 60% of bankruptcies are due to um, due to medical uh, you know medical costs, um, and so I, you know just to kind of research this on my own, I actually this evening went and was looking at um, medical bankruptcies, and there's actually a New England Journal of Medicine, which is one of the you know kind of very prestigious uh, medical journals, which uh, had an article from March 22 and 2018 called "Myth and Measurement: The, Co the Case of Medical Bankruptcies." And they really, um, they, it was interesting how they did this study. They actually looked at uh, people that were hospitalized and then followed them at a one and four year mark uh, and, and longer, and then looked to see, did they actually go bankrupt? And they estimated based on doing this, you know, and following people over time that actually really contributed to 4% of bankruptcies across the country. So I, I don't say that to minimize the, the, um, the, uh, uh, you know, effects of medical bankruptcy by any means, but it would be helpful to have kind of some understanding of the scope of, of that. Um, and, uh, and I definitely agree that healthcare costs are, you know, healthcare is more expensive than it should be. Um, and so that probably leads into this discussion of what we do. So Brett, you want to, <clears throat> you want to say something here since you haven't talked a lot yet? Um, well, the only thing I wanted in this may not fit, um, I was just writing it down so I didn't forget it. Um, and this may not fit, but, but if we're talking about the problems with healthcare, I see the link to the healthcare industry and our national economy as being problematic, not, not as in necessarily a negative situation, but um, because I get paid to work in healthcare, um, but that when we try tugging at strings and changing processes, we're not just affecting the people who provide direct care and the patients who are receiving that care, that there's this massive infrastructure. It's like we're playing Jenga and we're pulling blocks out. If that, if that fails, and I think we saw some of this in with the ACA in, in some improvements and then also in some reductions is uh, when that fails, it fails for a lot of people and it can cause, I mean, we're seeing, I guess probably a more apt example is there are a lot of people who work in healthcare who are out of, who are out of work right now. Um, because, well, it, because yeah, of COVID. I, yeah. 
and and COVID also illustrates some of the difficulties of our healthcare mm-hmm. uh, health insurance industry as well, because now lots of people are are looking at losing their healthcare. Yeah. So so anyway, I I, I don't know if I, I want to necessarily add that to the four pillars that you you've constructed, but I also just wanted to bring attention to the fact that as we discuss this, we need to understand the tie that it has with our economy. Yeah. Okay. You want to present your plan? My plan? Because it's the most reasonable plan? Sure. (laughs) Of course. Um, So a couple of things. I mean, uh, some of this is rough numbers coming off the top of my head. If I was president tomorrow, I'd need somebody to workshop this with me a little bit. (laughs) Just a touch. Just a a smidge. But I think probably the thing that I'm most passionate about is, uh, or that is tied to um, healthcare in some ways, uh, is the student loan crisis. Um, And we have a, we have a lot of people who are graduating from their MA academies with $36,000 worth of debt, and they're going to make $14 an hour. Um, And, and that is, that's an unfortunate situation, almost a predatory environment from those schools. We have uh, nurses who will graduate and it isn't for them. And now they have this student debt that they're bringing out into the world. And so they maybe can last three, four years and then they have to go find something else to do. Um, we get a lot of them in IT. Uh, and, and so I, I, in my ideal environment, would... Um, Number one, give a period of time. So I think in my, in my proposal, I said three years. Federal government says it will continue to fund healthcare at the current rate for the next three years. Because I think if we're going to make a transition from um, the current state, there's going to be, need to be some infrastructure investments and some money's going to need to come from federal sources to help fund new buildings and things like that. But I would like to essentially take the ability in Guam and in Chad, you're probably more, you're probably well aware of this. You know, when physicians graduated and finished the residency, if they served in Guam um, for, I think it was six years, their student loans were forgiven. Um, so you're referring to the general, like the, the general conference. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah. So they've, they've switched a little bit. They were, yeah, I think when we lived there, if you serve six years, it was automatically paid off. Now at this point, they're paying a certain amount per year, but yeah. Well, and they do this with education too. You have Teach for America and you have some other kind of funded programs that will do this to lure new teachers into underserved communities. But I think this could be expanded to not just, and not just for physicians, for nurses, for respiratory therapists, for the IT guys, for people who are involved in the entire the machine that is healthcare, that you can create an equation that allows people to make a living wage in a specific area that will pull them to underserved communities and that will, once they serve a specific period of time, will pay off their student loans at a specific rate per year or just a complete package. Um, and then allow us to address some of the student loan issues that we have. Because I do believe that student loan issue as a guy who graduated with a history degree and one hundred thousand dollars in student debt no joke and i worked as much as i possibly could at the job or at you know while i was a student um i understand that that i made those decisions some of them i made by the way i'm just going to say when i was 16 years old and not of contractual capacity but i i still made those decisions um 
so so I do believe that we there is some ownership that we need to take as students who are entering into these large um, these large contracts to to graduate with history degrees. Uh, but I also see this as an opportunity to save some money, but also to infuse underserved communities with energy that I think the younger healthcare community they bring. I think that younger healthcare providers bring a certain level of inexperience to it, but I think they also bring a certain level of energy, at least in my experience in working with younger providers. And so seeing that happen across all roles, I think would be pretty exciting. And I think it would, it would kind of solve two problems. Now, the funding for this is going to be a little bit tricky, but I'm a huge, as somebody who doesn't like taxes, I'm a huge fan of syntax or even consumption taxes. I, I, I can support those in, in different ways because if I don't like it, I won't buy it. But in California alone, just given the, I think it was the 2017 numbers, if we were to set a two cents per ounce tax on soft drinks, we would make two, we would, we would make a billion dollars a year. So that's on average, it would be a billion dollars a year. We, we get about 2.8 billion in cigarette taxes. And most of that goes into funds to educate against cigarettes. That may have been good to do in the late 80s, early 90s. I feel like we're there um, and, and uh, we can use that money maybe a little bit more responsibly uh, with direct health care, which they do in Oklahoma. Um, alcohol taxes. N almost no alcohol taxes go into health care related um, in state of California, healthcare related uh, endeavors. They go to the licensing board for like the ABC for licensing um, liquor licenses or providing liquor licenses. So we're just kind of no conflict of interest there. Yeah, that's right. We're just tying <laughs> up the money that we're making or that the state is making for the state. Um, cannabis taxes. So another half a billion. So there is money coming in from from sources that we can see contribute to um, to health related issues. I would even, let's say, if you want to tax my meat, you can tax my meat. I, I, I won't kick and scream. But I, I think that if we can, if we can get closer to funding this program, uh, that it would serve our students, or our recent graduates, and our underserved communities much better than the current model. Okay. So uh, a couple thoughts on that. And, and, um, Ethan, I'm sure you have a few as well. So one is we have this uh, to a limited degree. So already there's programs through California to, um, to support, you know, or, or attract people to low, uh, um, low resource settings or, or um, federally qualified health centers and that kind of thing. They can get lower payment, but um, uh, there's a limited number. So California had a scholarship for, I think, 120 physicians you know, across California, which is obviously a tiny amount. Um, if you do go to certain federally qualified health centers, you can get lower payment um, to a higher degree, uh, and and so that is available. But I think I agree not to the not to the uh, degree that it's needed. Um, <clears throat> and uh, the one challenge about that is that a lot of this probably would go into the FQHC or federally qualified health center realm, and um, depending on those are run to a varying degree um, of as far as physician incorporation into decision making and so especially when you have new graduates um, that can be very frustrating or uh, or very challenging 
uh, for new graduates to enter. <laughs> That's sure. one way of saying it, I guess. So. Well, and I, and I know that there are a lot of, I mean, when we run our FQs, even, even our, 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 you know, Loma Linda is managing the VA system, which that is the other thing is I would completely eliminate the VA uh, healthcare system um, and uh, provide instead um, full coverage for, for the care that's needed. But I would also probably have incentives for, um, for um, behavioral health uh, related practitioners that were that that studied specific programs to help our vets um, that may be something outside of the scope of a normal psychologist or psychiatrist who'd be dealing with um, issues that that maybe wouldn't necessarily be part of the veteran experience so yeah so, the, the so, government could still make sure that all of the VA purposes were served but it would right. do it through through the market yeah, I, I lived across the street in my old house from this really grumpy old Vietnam vet who um, hated going to the VA in Loma Linda. And he thought that since I worked at Loma Linda, I worked at the VA. So he was always trying to get me to help him. And he's like, I see this young doctor. And he told me, he said, your knees wouldn't hurt so bad if you just lose some weight. And I told him, son, my knees got blown off in Vietnam. <laughs> like, and, and like that, he just, I couldn't. I couldn't help him understand that I don't, I don't work for those people. I work for different, different people. But, but I, when I see the level of care that, that, you know, my friends and people I grew up with and some of my students have even received um, in like a, a VA setting versus a private care setting, um, they generally tend to prefer the private care setting. And if they, if the VA was insurance instead of a facility, I think it would work better. And we would, we would have way less overhead. So one thing I notice is um, you talked about how these two industries are coupled, healthcare and, and education, or in particular, health professional education. Um, ironically, another industry that is experiencing a very similar thing to healthcare in that we have ballooning costs, shrinking capacity, or interesting capacity issues in, in higher ed. Um, uh, and it's very hard to get underneath and go, gosh, why is some of this stuff happening? Mm -hmm. All we know is next year's 10% more expensive than this year. That's all anybody knows. Um, and you look under every rock for the cost increases and there's some under there and there's a lot of rocks. And I guess that explains it. Um, one of the things that bothers me about your suggestion is that I lay some of the problems for that situation in higher ed uh, on the subsidy of education by the federal government. Um, the federal education loans subsidize the risk of those loans. And so they make those 16 year olds and 17, 18 year olds able to say, sure, that's the next thing, right? I go to college and I, I sign these papers and I do the loans. And yeah, they come out with 20 or 60 or $120,000 of debt and maybe they've got a degree, maybe they've got a great degree. Maybe it doesn't suit them. Maybe, maybe they don't have anything, whatever. Um, and that money is still going into that system and they're going to pay it off because you can't declare bankruptcy from those loans. And so it, um, it, one of the stories that is certainly at least partly true is that this has simply allowed universities unintentional really to just ramp up costs, people, buildings, programs. Um, 
because the money's going to be there. And your suggestion, Brett, seems to decouple the last thing that's hitched to reality here, which is now the students never even have to pay off those loans. So now they just say, yes, 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 sign, sign, sign. And then they do the things that you want them to do. And the public is paying those. And how high can we go then? Um, what's going to tether these to these these numbers to anything? Yeah. So that's a concern I have, and I know it's we're not just going to go flying off a cliff in in year two of your your uh, administration, but uh, <laughs> but you know if there oh. <laughs> there's something we've seen, like for example, the dramatic impact of the tax preference for employers buying health insurance, um, and a couple human generations of the effects of that piling up, goodness knows how much of our current healthcare cost predicament could be laid at the feet of that, that situation. And it seems to me that you're potentially creating another bubble, if you will, um, that is only gonna get popped very late by any form of reality because the government isn't subject to a lot of reality that the market is. Yeah, and, and I, I think probably, well, this is just a piece of, I. I one of the ideas or one of the things that I f feel like we should be doing as a nation is investing in what our needs, what we anticipate our needs to be. Um, it's going to take me four years to get through college um, or six. Uh, but the, what, you know, when we look at our infrastructure, we look at engineering, we look at STEM, we look at all the fields right now that, that as a nation, we historically have been on the cutting edge and now we're not but we are still educating a lot of people that are taking quality programs um, or quality jobs in our country um, that really isn't necessarily moving, it's moving the pieces of our country forward, but it's not moving our country forward in these, in these areas. Like for example, we have engineers and I'll, I'll break it down a little bit more. We have a lot of engineers who are graduating right now, but they're going into fields that aren't building our bridges that aren't, that aren't fixing our infrastructure. And I don't believe that our, that, that we necessarily have to do a, a, like a CCC style fix our infrastructure program. But I also think that we can't entice people into some of the more like general engineering fields um, because private companies are able to offer, even if it's not a much better pay, it's a much better experience. It's much flashier. I would work at SpaceX a hundred times before I even work for NASA, um, right now because of how we value NASA versus how we value SpaceX. That's probably a good thing oh. overall, but I, I, I think when we look at what our country needs as far as infrastructure, we could start offering these same types of programs for the, the, not just the healthcare needs of the country. So I, I, um, I think I think I have a different critique of your of your um, proposal, Brett. Uh, I'm not too worried about educating over educating people. Um, to me, that seems like a pretty minimal concern. I mean, generally, uh, you know, people. Um, it would be a relatively small number of people that are gonna, just going to be career students and just you know, spend all of our money getting their education. Um, and so I, I don't see the, the, that that's going to be a, you know, huge number of people to create a big downside. What I don't see from your proposal is an actual decrease in the cost of healthcare. Um, that's one thing that you hadn't spoken to yet. And I'm guessing you had thoughts about that, but I think that's what I'm curious about. I think 
you know, we already have the FQHC um, kind of infrastructure in place to address some of what you're speaking of, but we would need to ramp up capacity. And part of that might be with, um, if you wanted to, to quotes, privatize the VA or, you know, suddenly offer, allow other people to, to essentially run it, um, then that could be some of the, you know, government uh, um, hospitals that maybe could serve beyond the VA. But I, I guess I'm curious about what your proposal is beyond student debt. Uh, so, so beyond student debt uh, and the elimination of the VA, I think that is basically all I've thought about. Okay, so we'll say more than about the elimination of the VA. Like what, you know, you, you uh, like, I mean, what are we going to do with all those facilities? What are we going to do with the infrastructure? You know, there's probably a lot. Maybe, maybe you haven't considered that far. Well, I, I think, yeah, if you're talking about like, what are we gonna do with the big hospital that exists in Loma Linda right now, right? Like the, we've pumped b billions of dollars into over the course of the last 40 years that it's been there. Um, I don't have an answer for that. I just know that the patients that, and, and, and maybe the answer is, as we start to invest in the infrastructure that we need for this new version, and, and, and keep in mind, I'm keeping this to each state to make their own, to, to create their own program. But if they create a program that will, qualify for federal dollars and and that's that's i think the carrot that the federal government still has in all of this is for the next period of time we still have federal money available because i don't think we can just stop like cold turkey we can't just quit that but we need to allow empower states to become self-sufficient with their healthcare systems and what will work for california is going to work very very differently than what would work in Oklahoma, for example. So, okay. So let's, let's, so I have some interesting, um, you know, experiences and thoughts about the VA. One is that, um, that the VA is a very inefficient system. Um, I was just talking to somebody this last week about, um, about that. And they were, you know, talking about how many patients as a surgical subspecialist they could see in their normal private clinic versus how many they see at the VA. And it was like, I mean, less than, less than half you know, uh, at the VA. And there's a lot of different reasons for that. Um, I, I don't think it's provider like, you know, laziness by any means. I, he wouldn't say that. Um, but, uh, but there's just a lot of systems that, that, um, or things that affect that. Now, having said that the VA, um, also at the same time has led in significant ways. So CPRS, which was the, um, electronic health record, that uh, was around when I was a medical student when most other hospitals were on paper for years and years after that, um, the VA had a very good electronic health record infrastructure and it worked pretty well for the time. And it's, you know, unfortunately not been as effective in the 10 years following that, but it was surprising how the VA could lead on that specific thing um, with some significant vision from uh, from VA leadership, you know, nationally, um, and uh, and and that's a little bit surprising. Now, the other thing I was going to say is that, um, in to some degree, I think there is some benefit in uh, physicians, nurses, um, psychologists, uh, and the other VA staff having a concentrated. Um, essentially population of veterans in that veterans deal with some things which you kind of mentioned of you would need to have mental health specifically um, familiar with veterans and what they deal with. Um, 
And I think uh, physicians and nurses that are not working in the VA system would be unfamiliar with how to deal with that. Um, and so there is some benefit to having, you know, people that are working with veterans all the time, familiar with, you know, some of the issues that they deal with and know, you know, a little bit how to deal with them. Uh, and so that would be one concern of just, you know, having everybody go wherever they, they desire. The other, the other thought I have about that is, um, uh, for, um, funding for veterans that would have to be out of some type of nationalized, um, you know, health insurance yeah. program, it seems like. Yeah, for sure. I think what we're, what, what I'm advocating for is that we, we transition some of the dollars that are currently in the bureaucracy and the infrastructure and put and put that as a, as into payment. Um, I, I think one of the things that I struggle with is with, you know, let take the medical record example. Um, so we, we, that that's true, but now we have a system that's trying to implement uh, Cerner, you know, system wide, and it keeps missing its deadlines and missing its deadlines because of the bureaucracy that you mentioned. And I think one of the things that I struggle with is it'd be like Loma Linda or any company going through potentially having a new CEO every four years or even every two years because the person who runs the VA serves at the pleasure of the president. And so you can't really have, I, I don't think you can have a 30 year vision for what your organization is going to provide with leadership changing over so rapidly. I, I, I do think that there are, and I have said there are, there are things that uh, a veteran is going to uh, have a, a unique need uh, for unique types of care, but I think I trust more our medical education to be able to provide that for um, for providers. Or we say if we want to go ahead and, and maintain some sort of federal control over where their dollars are going, that a certain number of of providers in these specialties have to be employed by a healthcare organization for the patient to be able to be seen there. I mean, we 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 already see CMS is controlling. Um, every aspect of what you do in your job, Chad. So I, uh, we, we know the federal government is equipped to be able to to do that. But I, I, you know, when you look at the inefficiencies of the VA as they exist and, and the value too, there's value there. But I think when I think of a single payer system or a, a federally managed healthcare system, I see everybody having to work for the VA. And that that's a little bit frightening for somebody like me. <laughs> that's a good transition point. So, uh, so uh, those of you that, are, that have listened to us before would probably anticipate that I would advocate for a single payer system across the, um, across the spectrum, similar to Medicare for all, uh, and um, the Bernie Sanders plan, which would, would have eliminated um, private insurance and several other people that had advocated for that. I actually don't really uh, um, agree with eliminating private insurance. Um, that would threaten, it, it, it might be very successful in decreasing, uh, you know, the problems that, two of the problems that Ethan had mentioned as far as healthcare costs um, and that healthcare is unaffordable for, for many. Um, I don't th think that that would solve the issue of freedom within healthcare. Um, and, uh, and I'm also, I don't know that it would also address the issues of equity. It may to some degree. Um, but, uh, I think that, um, it would create enough problems that I, that's, that's something that I'm skeptical of as well, Brett. So, uh, I would be a little bit reticent to, um, to do, uh, 
single payer entirely. So what I, what I would propose is something akin to Australia's system where they have a combination of Medicare, which is their nationalized program, and they also have private insurance uh, that you can purchase in addition to that. Now, Medicare, <clears throat> in reading about it, their version, I should say, of Medicare, will provide um, preventive care, it will, at least to some degree. It will provide um, hospital uh, care. It uh, covers um, you know, surgeries and that kind of thing. One of the things that it, it, um, it seems like it may not cover, and I'm sure there's some variation on this, is prescription medications. Um, although it sounds like they've done uh, some good work on lowering the prescription costs. And so uh, <clears throat> that is one of the things that can be prohibitive in the U.S. Um, is prescription costs. We've got an executive order. So <laughs> all squared away. Let's see what that executive order means. But uh, yeah, he sure. really hasn't been pardoned and put in charge of all pharmaceuticals. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so what would this... But go ahead, Ethan. I shouldn't even joke about that. Until <laughs> 2020, um, there's time. Yeah, yeah, there's <laughs> So uh, what would this mean, in my mind, is you would have to, you know, beef up the, um, uh, I, I, you, you would need to have an expansion in the, um, uh, in the, um, to some degree, I guess, in the, in the amount of, um, people that, that have uh, or that utilize public insurance, you know, uh, Medicare or whatever program. Um, and people would be, opt be able to opt into that system and uh, that would decrease their amount of choice. So they wouldn't necessarily get to um, the physician that they want to keep seeing. Uh, it would decrease their amount of choices the far, as far as the hospitals. It would also significantly impact their experience in the hospital. So it would be a much more bare bones experience in the hospitals compared to what we have now. I mean, those of you that, um, I don't know if either of you have been in healthcare systems besides the U.S., but it's been interesting. I've been able to be in healthcare systems in a few countries and uh, see, you know, the way that they work. And um, often uh, the, the family... Uh, will get even while the patient is in the hospital, will get a prescription for the medication. They have to go to a pharmacy. It could be the hospital pharmacy or it could be an outside pharmacy. Procure the medication, bring it back, and then the nurse will administer it. Um, and and so there's big variations as far as you know the the uh, the level of service that is provided. And so if you were to have you know kind of a more public model for that, that would significantly bear you know be a more bare bones uh, experience um, <clears throat> versus, you know, or sorry, before I go to that, um, you know, if, if, if you're per purchasing private insurance, that would give you more options as far as who, who you can see um, and what hospitals you can go to, um, what kind of drug coverage or prescription drug coverage you might have uh, and um, basically just give you more freedom uh, to make your choices. And um, I think the combined effect of this would overall decrease uh, cost of insurance because um, if insurers know that there's going to be in general catastrophic coverage for say car accident, um, leukemia, things like that, the, the premiums are going to go down because they're not having to pick up a multi-million dollar tab for something that the patient really doesn't have any control over in general. 
Um, and so premiums would go down, make them affordable to more people who could then choose whether they want to purchase that or not. Um, <clears throat> this also probably would give more leeway for the public option to um, pare down the number of medications that they that they that they're that are used and give them more leverage in negotiating drug prices because you have a much broader pool of people that would be utilizing that um, that public option. It, that would be my suspicion is that many many people would uh, go for a, the public option alone. Um, and so I think that uh, that also may allow for a more efficient um, the development and. Those you guys are libertarians, so you probably wouldn't see the federal government being efficient, but uh, but a more efficient infrastructure um, than than what we currently have um, going uh, in in medicine in the U.S. Do you, do you see the the so the reduction then in expenses translating into uh, a reduction in workforce in healthcare in general? Well, it depends on what you're including in the workforce. So, I mean, one would hope that there would be a reduction in the administrative type of, you know, whether it's approving, you know, an MRI or, or you know, approving this medication versus that medication, um, that there would be a, a reduction in the bureaucracy of whether that's private insurance bureaucracy or, you know, the public insurance bureaucracy, that that would be reduced. I wouldn't think that there would be a need for it or there would be a decrease in the no, overall uh, number of people providing care to the, directly to the patient. Well, and that, that's kind of the, the previous point that you talked about was, was kind of what I was getting at was if you had these multiple, you know, multiple options, you'd still have to have a billing office, for example, right? So you, you would still have people who are having to work work queues and manage costs as they were distributed to specific payers. And so the, um, like the overhead as far as that's concerned would probably still be there. Yeah, I think, I mean, you would have to have some, yeah, some degree of overhead from, from that. that. That would be one advantage of a single payer system. But to me, the reduction in choice uh, offsets any of the benefits of a just entirely, you know, single payer system. I'm just trying to figure out if I have a job in this new model. That's all. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think you do. Okay, good. <laughs> is that is that what's going to make you come down in favor of it or not? <laughs> no, because I'm still not paying off my student loans uh, at Ethan. <laughs> so, uh, Chad, so let me get this straight. So, on this system, I could not buy anything from anybody, and I would have primary and preventative care covered. Right. And I'd have catastrophic insurance. Right. Um, so what does that leave and what percentage of healthcare spending do you think that leaves? Um, that's a really good question. Um, so, and, and actually I'll, let me go back to the presentation that, uh, um, that I was showing earlier because I want to show an, an additional slide. While you're um, looking for that, will I get to keep my doctor? I've been <laughs> promised that I'll you opt into the public option? Possibly not. Um, so, uh, if you like your plan, you can keep your plan. Bro. Yeah, if you like your plan, <laughs> you can keep it. Um, oh, where did that go? 
<clears throat> um, and I, I guess what goes along with this is uh, these private plans are they they feel like garnish to me like um, because you're suggesting I'm not going to get a private plan that replaces the public plan those probably wouldn't even be offered it's kind of like how disability insurance is as cheap as it is privately which isn't too cheap but, it, but it, it's cheaper than it would be because if you actually get SSDI, they go, oh, thank you. And the private insurance takes all of that money that you get. And now they're just paying you the little bit of premium on top of that that they offered you. So huge chunks of their, their risk are covered by the fact that you have SSDI you know, available, potentially available to you underneath. If, if this insurance that you're suggesting is operating that way, then, I mean, who really is out there buying and selling catastrophic cancer insurance? Am I gonna bother? I mean, I could afford it in this world, but am I gonna bother? Um, or is it gonna be like, yeah, there's Medicare Part D or whatever, and we can go pay an extra 120 a month and we get some little extra niceties? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, that um, there, it, it, I don't think it would be just garnishes. I mean, it would be significant differences in, in your experience. So for instance, like, you know, if I think of our maternity ward at, uh, or our maternity care at Loma Linda, um, often you are in a single room that's really, I mean, big. Sometimes there will be two people in there, but, um, but it's, I mean, it's a beautiful unit. Um, it is uh, like- So, it, so it'd be really, a two-class system, it sounds like. Yeah, essentially, or yeah. that's what you imagine coming out of it. You'd say, right. well, I don't know what the government's gonna be able to pull off, but it might have to be limited in some ways, whereas, hey, sky's the limit for private. So, th so there may result a two-class system. Yeah, I mean, we already have a two-class system. This would just be to expand those that uh, that um, currently don't qualify in a, in many ways for you know medic uh, Medicaid um, or obviously they don't qualify for Medicare, um, but they could opt to receive that that level of care, and we would need to ramp up the uh, the availability for that care because we currently don't have the capability of taking all that you know care on in our public system, um, but. Uh, but I think there would be a lot of advantages gained and it would also impact um, uh, people in their livelihood positively as well. Um, so, you know, we talked about medical bankruptcy at the beginning of this um, and that, you know, medical bankruptcy doesn't account for nearly the degree of bankruptcies that, you know, it, that it, it's commonly talked about. But um, one of the things that I think has stifled many people is the need to have health insurance at all times. Um, and it is prohibitively costly if you don't have health insurance through your employer or if you've changed employers and you're trying to do COBRA. I mean, that is prohibitively costly to purchase health insurance on your own. And so if people didn't have that burden of trying to maintain health insurance at all times, like what kind of possibilities might we have um, and what kinds of possibilities might people pursue? I mean, one of the most interesting articles that I read on on the re the, the uh, basis for um, you know socialized medicine was actually from a libertarian who said you know healthcare and the need to have healthcare is holding people back from 
pursuing their their freedoms. So uh, yeah, it's almost that, as if it's a it's almost as if it's like a quarter of the UBI. Yeah, yeah, right. It's one, of, it's one of those basic needs, and it's one of the places basic income would obviously go. Right, right. So, what's your funding plan, Chad? How are you going to pay for this? <laughs> Since I know you're a socialist, how are we? Going to pay for it? <laughs> yeah. So, um, well, I, I mean, I think that to, to, as Brett, as Brett pointed out, I, if I were to become president, I would need somebody to kind of help me do the, <laughs> the, uh, do the nitty gritty, you know, calculation, anal calculated analysis of this. Um, I, I mean, you know, I don't know what the cost of transitioning towards this. I, I think you would have to raise taxes, but you know, generally, if you look at the countries that have had socialized medicine, People are, we're essentially taxing people in a sense, even if, because they want to have health insurance, they feel like they need to have health insurance, which maybe you don't, you may or may not relate to that, but, um, but uh, people feel that way. And, um, and so, you know, this would overall result in less income out of their pocket, uh, even sure. if so, so, so you're saying, yeah, there's got to be money to pay for this, but Ethan, how much are you spending out of pocket or out of out of your your total benefits package from your employer right. to pay for healthcare? And I go, uh, ooh, you know, seventeen thousand dollars a year for my family or something. You go, well, there's the money, right? Right. And I think I think I so I pay like I pay forty two dollars a pay period. For my for for that's one of the things I'm coming out of this conversation with amazing healthcare, and that's one of the benefits that my and you know Ethan you you mentioned this earlier this is one of the benefits that my employer offers and therefore it has become part of the problem is of course you you truly do pay more than forty two because it has to be looked at as part of your total compensation you cost your employer your healthcare cost your employer hundreds of dollars a month and they are giving that to you in exchange for your labor. In, in, yes, it is, it, is a, it is a negotiation point, or I guess at least it used to be. So, when, so your labor would, you could, reclaim, you could claim that as cash, as take home, mm -hmm. if you didn't need healthcare and your employer wasn't tied into this system sure. where, oh, you don't want it, great, but we're not offering you any more money. Well, and that's why, you know, yeah, and that's why, like, the oil change analogy works really well for me. Knock on wood, I have one annual exam every year, and if I could walk into Target Optical or Target Health and pay $150 and have a, uh, an NP look in all my nooks and crannies, and then uh, I'm, I'm good to go, great. Then I'm saving a ton of money by making that money and not, not paying for it. So and I'm not suggesting, by the way, that people don't need insurance. I think insurance is the most awesome invention humans have ever come up with. Um, I, I love insurance. So I um, may, I don't know if we want to transition to Ethan's uh, Ethan's points, but I, I I'm a little bit skeptical of that example, Brad, because sure it's great when you um, when all you need is the annual health exam, but when you have leukemia. Nobody can afford, no matter what, unless you are Bill Gates or you know Jeff Bezos or somebody to that degree. Like nobody on the average level can afford treatment for leukemia or even a catastrophic car accident where you have to get a, you know acute rehab. Right. Nobody can afford that. And Which so, is why, sorry, 
No, that's okay. It's, I was just going to say, like, you know, um, we have to provide that, uh, or I think we have to provide that as part of, of equity and justice um, for everyone. Um, and how we do that is the question. Well, in, in the other half of the oil change analogy is I have car insurance for when that happens, right? I'm not saying that I don't need car, I'm saying I don't use my car insurance to get my oil changed. And so that's where the, the concept of a catastrophic package um, is a great thing, like being able to just only have to assume risk for the normal day-to-day -day operations of my body and let my catastrophic coverage um, whether that's coming from the federal government or that's coming from my employer or that's coming from a third source. Um, I, I completely understand there's a need for that. Okay, Ethan. Uh, sounds like, you, sounds like my turn. I think it's your turn. Uh, and, and, oh no, go ahead, go ahead. We'll get to it when you, when you get to it. Okay. Um, so I, I think we've joked that, that this is uh, the three and a half libertarians uh, show here, but uh, this is going to be one of those points where I think it's going to look like there's only one libertarian and I'm in. Yeah. I've said consumption tax enough times during this conversation, Ethan, that I think I get uh, drummed out of the party, but go ahead. Um, so I'm going to recap uh, the problems I saw. Individuals don't have health freedom in the U.S. They're highly constrained in their um, their legal autonomy and and their actual options in the marketplace as a result of of uh, legal policies that we have. Um, the costs are higher than they than they ought to be, and I have a I have a reason that I think is primarily to blame for that. And uh, and of course, healthcare is unaffordable for some. Healthcare has always been unaffordable for some. But it's gotten worse because healthcare actually started doing things. Uh, you know, 100 years ago, yeah, you couldn't afford the doctor, but the doctor couldn't do anything for you. So it was true. <laughs> there it was, was a lot cheaper to treat 100 years ago. So, um, so those are the issues. Um, each of those is also true of health insurance, just by extension. Uh, the problems of healthcare extend to the problems of health insurance in general. Um, the solution to the first two, the lack of health freedom and unnecessarily high costs for all, is to free the U.S. citizen with regard to the maintenance of their own body. Um, and I'll say what I mean by that in a moment. And the solution to the third is partly the same because that's going to reduce costs. And so it's going to move the needle on how many people in the U.S. can't afford health care. It's going to move it in the optimal direction. Um, but it's partly uh, mutual aid social activity, charitable social activity. Or, you know, if you like your government, you can keep your government and uh, it can keep taxing us to some extent and, and redistributing that money. There's people talking about UBIs and so forth. If healthcare were as cheap as I think it ought to be, and if insurance were more straightforward and, and uh, as a result of the cheaper healthcare, more affordable, I think that we would start to see this as less of a healthcare problem that had to be solved and more of just a, hey, people need a certain amount of money to live. And if they don't have enough, maybe we should help them with some of that somewhere for some period of time or whatever. And we wouldn't start thinking, 
I have to give that person healthcare. We would think that person can get healthcare. They, they need a job. They need money. They need something to hold them over. They need a support group, you know, a support uh, network or something. So my proposals um, have to do with health freedom and allowing a true markets and market behavior and activity, consumer choice and and uh, um, uh, uh, competition to solve these pricing problems for us. The proposals I have are eliminate occupational licenses in medicine. Um, there is a constraint on how much talent we can train and hire in the market. There's a big constraint on how much that talent has to cost because their education costs a certain amount. And those things being done by law are like we were talking about education, somewhat untethered to reality and one of the realities that i want them to be tethered to is what is the actual value of healthcare and of quality a healthcare versus quality b healthcare care versus quality c healthcare right now i don't get to vote on any of that with my dollars the ama tells me or whoever you know certifies you chad uh, and the state kind of signs off on that it goes oh if this organization doesn't say chad's cool then chad's not cool and i don't get to as a consumer um do anything about that and that has a that has a long-term you know effect on on costs that pushes upwards um okay so i, I want to pause sorry i know this is kind of interrupting you have a lot of points that um that i think if i wait till the end i i okay. I, uh, I mean and and this goes into your question of expertise um and how do we think of expert at least i believe um goes into the question of expertise and you know how do we think about expertise uh, one of the um, things that I would say is that you do have options as a consumer to some degree, uh, and I'll grant that they're limited. Um, you have options, especially if you have, um, you know, depending on what type of insurance you've purchased, uh, then you have options as far as, you know, who you go to see. You also have options within that healthcare system to complain about providers. You have options through the health you know, the medical, the medical, sure, but, but I don't have an option to choose an entire different track of education and, and healthcare provision. Um, and, and I, I don't even have op that, like those options don't exist. It's not like I'm not allowed to use them. I, they don't exist because they're not allowed to exist. And so I'm not suggesting that I even know how we would end up with good doctors for half the money. I'm suggesting that we probably would, and we would all learn how that was going to come about. It right. might come about because of, of um, uh, people like you realizing, gosh, I've got free reign. I mean, I could start our hospital tomorrow. I don't need anybody's by your leave. Gee, um, I wonder if I really need nurses if, what if i completely arrange supervision rearrange supervision and um you know and we checklist certain things and we blah blah what if and, and you may be able to see that tons of primary care could be well supplied and lots of referrals would go out for serious stuff but that tons of primary care could be provided with far fewer skilled people than 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 they're currently you know happening maybe that's a pie in the sky dream but right now chad if you see a way to do that that's interesting. That's a lovely idea, Chad. <laughs> I, I don't think you, you're not allowed to do much about it. Um, 
and and if if nothing else because um, of all of the all of the hurdles of funding and liability and getting laws changed and blah blah blah. In any event, I better I better keep going with my list. Uh, <laughs> this is this is the Ethan show right now. We so. we should spend a discussion on expertise because I think sure. there that. Yeah, going into I'm not suggesting that we don't need as much expertise as we have. I'm suggesting yeah. that in a stale, monopolized, cartelized market, we pay more for our expertise than we need to pay in many ways. I'm not saying you earn too much money, Chad, and that's the problem at all. I'm saying no, like your education probably cost way too much. No, no, no. I probably I, have too many people of too high a skill level helping you out. Um, yeah. and, and that if we ran car maintenance the way we ran healthcare, we would have doctors of auto maintenance uh, <laughs> and a new engine would be like, we, you know, I'll just throw the car away and buy a new one, thanks. And every oil change, yeah. The auto production industry is still unregulated, so I don't need the doc. <laughs> no, I, I, I know what you're saying. I just think if we went on death on this, we yeah it would be there there's things to discuss i'm sure yes okay um end med medicinal drug prescriptions um so uh, uh we got here in the in the speed run um i i don't think you know we should need anyone's permission to use most recreational drugs although i'm not interested in it myself i certainly don't think we need anyone's permission to use medicinal drugs uh sure they're dangerous lots of stuff is dangerous my car is dangerous um uh i can run really fast and kill myself by running into a brick wall with my own feet. I mean, there's dangerous stuff all over the place. There's Clorox, there's electrical outlets. Um, uh, we're, in, we're supposed to be in charge of our lives and our risk taking and, and things like that until it, impacts, until it impacts the rights of other people, right? Um, not until it gets to where they can see it, but until it touches their nose, so to speak. And that means, um, I should get to decide how to treat myself for things. And my doctor is an advisor. And I'm actually empowered to source drugs, decide what to take and so forth. Um, and I'll say many countries have this as a, you know, that, that's how they work. They do? Um, yeah, yeah, you could go to that pharmacy and just buy whatever medication you want. Um, okay. um, we should grant free reign on what insurance contracts can be built. So in, insurance is highly constrained these days states control it um state insurance commissioners control it and uh you just can't write any old thing it's highly prescribed um what's allowed um you go down very well beaten paths and uh uh you and insurance companies often get told you have to cover this now if you're a health insurer you have to cover this if you're uh, a disability insurer you have to cover this you have to do it this way you have to do this paperwork everything um so that's that's a really ossified industry, and I would want to throw the door wide open on that. The government still has a very important role in insurance, which is to police fraud. They have to make sure that the contract gets carried out. They can also expound, you know, on their opinion of, of different insurers, and they can have rating scales and certifications and so forth. But ultimately, they should let me pick. And a good way to do that is to throw open their jurisdictions and say, California companies under California rules can sell Ethan insurance in Washington. So Ethan now gets to pick from 50 jurisdictions. Oh, and international too. And now Washington state has to compete. They have to go, oh, no insurers live here. I wonder why that is. 
maybe because it's three times as expensive to be an insurer in Washington State as anywhere else. And now, in addition to having our, you know, looking out for patients and making sure we can police fraud, we also have to be a place that insurance companies think they can succeed. And so there's pressure, there's a market pressure there because there's a market for law. Um, give equal tax footing to individuals and employers. I shouldn't be at a disadvantage to, to my employer when I'm buying health insurance. And the story of how we got here is interesting. And, uh, and but, but the bottom line is when you lose your job, it's a really bad time to lose your health insurance. <laughs> and yes. our tax policy has flat out created that. It has given employers more power over employees because of that. Unions loved it because it gave them more to do and, uh, and more to claim you know, responsibility for. But the proper relationship uh, is between an individual and, uh, and their doctor or between an individual and their insurer and their doctor. And if they want to make common cause with other individuals or join a big mutual aid or something, they, they can do that. But that really is disempowering if it's tied to their employment. Um, so mm -hmm. we should get rid of that. And it will naturally leave if we just take the tax subsidy away. We should repeal HIPAA. Um, and this is kind of the tip of the iceberg, but it's just one of those regulations where, um, uh, you know, it's kind of a public choice theory issue. The, the people empowered to make these decisions and write these laws they get their paycheck for writing laws, not for, you know, not for um, uh, helping me. <laughs> we have to trust that uh, a lot of processes in between that they actually know or care how to help me. Um, it's very easy to come up with lots of laws that sound great. And many of the costs of those laws on the consumer, on the person that's sick and needs healthcare are invisible to the person writing the laws. They're invisible when they're passed. And then they just creep up and this law is big and huge and everywhere and unchangeable and the costs are locked in. And HIPAA is one of those that to me is obvious. I see it all over the place. Um, and, you know, partly because of some luck in life, I don't give a damn about my health privacy. I wouldn't pay you a penny to keep my health, my health information safe. And I'm truly paying hundreds of dollars a year just for privacy, if not thousands because the systems that have to guarantee privacy are pretty extravagant. And it's one thing that I know, and I bet Brad understands some of them, because being in, in IT, being in training, being in software, um, the, the, the blood, so to speak, that is spilled over, over this is extreme. And when we let individuals tell us in the market what privacy is worth to them, it ain't worth nothing. When we let so them in the market and I beyond healthcare and we're like, yeah. Oh, this is $5. And this one is, is safer and more secure and it's private. And it's $5 and 50 cents. They're like, $5 is all I got. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I want to ask, I want to ask then a further question. So, uh, you know, granted uh, that you uh, may not have things that uh, you care to keep private. I mean, I would I imagine some. I have some, you know, and it impacts insurance at times. But yeah, but uh, you know, a fair number of other people do have things that they would keep private. So, so how would you see um, uh, encouraging that if, if it wasn't through HIPAA? Well, you know, would that... you know, when people pick their doctors, they don't want the doctor. They don't want to know the doctor's going down to the bar and blabbing about them that night. And sure, things used to work that way sometimes for some doctors. But the medical um, 
med med medicine is one of the oldest professions and there's there's um, high flown standards and you know self uh, uh, there, there's there are philosophies of ethical provision of medicine that that are important and uh, um, those ideas wouldn't disappear just because HIPAA wasn't there, right? You, Chad, would still have strong standards about how you dealt with, with your patient's information, and that would still grow over time, and you could opt for certifications. You could opt for HIPAA. Government can still run HIPAA, and people can decide if it's worthwhile. But I bet if anybody had any choice of whether to use HIPAA, the government would immediately change it to be easier to use because Otherwise, everybody would drop it, right? And they'd go, somebody would start up a certification and they'd be like, HIPAA is just over the top. I'm going to start up something that costs people half as much and it's just as good. And pretty soon the government would be like, gee, HIPAA doesn't exist anymore. Maybe we should, maybe we should improve it. Or maybe the market is provided and we should drop it. Hmm. That, actually, um, that was something that I was curious and actually I've been wanting to ask you for a while, Chad. When, when you graduated, when you finished whatever at whatever stage, did you like take the Lewis Lasagna um, modern Hippocratic Oath? Like, is that a thing that you did? <laughs> the Lewis Lasagna? <laughs> yeah. That, that was the, in like the early 60s, he was the physician who rewrote the Hippocratic Oath for modern times. Oh. I've been fascinated so. with the oath itself, but there is a, there is like a, a portion of that that says like, I will respect the privacy of my patients for their problems are not disclosed to me that the world may know. And so like, I'm, I'm just curious if that's still common practice to, to take the oath. Uh, so I don't think I took that specific oath. Um, I think that uh, it's been a long time. I think we did take a, the, uh, there was a Christian version of the Hippocratic Oath given that we're alone, Melinda, that we took that. Um, generally, I think all students at schools do take some type of oath, um, and it varies by school. Uh, now, as far as HIPAA, you know, I think that uh, generally I don't see um, HIPAA playing out uh, as physicians or nurses not taking it seriously. I mean, there, there are cases of that. I remember one of the distinct cases, one of my friends who was in um, residency in a, in a different program in the U.S., um, Somebody at his program took a picture of a distinct uh, patient's tattoo on their um, man parts and posted it on Facebook and it became a national lawsuit and the guy was kicked out of residency. Wow. Um, and so there are definitely people that, uh, that break that. I mean, I think the, the expense, that's not the expense to HIPAA. And at right. least in my expense to HIPAA is really the, um, the electronic uh, protection um, and and the fees that hospitals can uh, incur because of accidental, generally accidental um, releases of uh, of information. So, um, yeah. And I think what Ethan's um, saying is is that school removing or that program removing that provider would be in the best interest of that program, whether HIPAA existed or not, right? When that became a national yeah, it's, issue. it's not going to be perfect, but like, look, people still care about this stuff. It's yeah. just, I, I mean, I don't think that would have happened if HIPAA didn't exist, though. Like, that would not maybe, have happened. Maybe, have. maybe yeah, maybe. Um, or, or, yeah. Um, all I'm saying is a lot of the things that we've tried to do via policies and laws are, are we have, they're good goals. 
But when we pursue them with coercion, and law is guns, I mean, literally, people are pointing guns at you and saying, you will obey HIPAA, or you will leave this building, and you will leave your career, and you will not come back, or you will be in prison. It's not, a, it's not, there's no metaphor there. <laughs> Try mm -hmm. it, right? <laughs> there's no meta, the, the gun is not metaphorical. When force, physical force is used to apply this to everyone in the nation, there is no competition for efficiency. The costs of HIPAA are irrelevant to whether HIPAA will continue to exist. And the costs of many other things in medicine are irrelevant to whether they will continue to exist and contribute costs to medicine. And that's why our medicine costs are out of control. Um, it's not the only reason. And you can find counterexamples. You're like, well, this country has half our medical costs and they have something that's you know, equal to HIPAA. Um, eventually the cost might start to come down. Everybody's doing it and, and everything's been subsumed into normal operations. Um, of course, there's a lot of expensive healthcare, you know, that took place for 20 years. And the question is, do consumers want this? Is this actually good for consumers? Um, and my, my answer is, I want to let real answers bubble up. And having a massive coercive entity come in and say this is the way it's going to be is not a way that lets those answers bubble up and get negotiated we rely on not only democracy and democratic representation for all of our protection there but on the actual ability and the information availability of the people that we vote for even if they have the best wills in the world and i maintain as, as an economic principle that they they have insufficient information they have insufficient incentive to find the right cost level so that I'm not overpaying for privacy. Um, and, and I wanna behave in a free market because I think that's gonna give me ultimately better outcomes, better cost adjusted outcomes, right? Um, another thing I would do away with is certificates of needs and other uh, barriers to expansion. A lot of people don't know you can't start a hospital, you can't open a clinic in a lot of states. I think it's the majority of states without saying, please, sir, can I open a clinic? And, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's ridiculous. To me, it's insane. Um, I, I walked into my favorite restaurant here in Walla Walla the other, a few months ago, and I read, I glanced at the newspaper thing they have outside, and, you know, Walla Walla Hospital, um, uh, you know, drops two-year long-running request to add 18 beds or something like that. And I'm just like, <laughs> I mean, I needed to see no headline but that to know the entire cascade of what is wrong with costs in our in, in healthcare. What industry works that way and doesn't have isn't just completely a wreck. Um, almost finally, I'm going to save the best one for last for you, Chad. Um, <laughs> I would retake patent and copyright for the public good or abolish them. Um, this is a, maybe a strange one for me as a libertarian. Even few libertarians disagree fundamentally with intellectual property, but I do. I don't think that you can, you can layer property, property rights over ideas. Um, I don't buy any of the ways that people have tried to do it, and I have studied them. Um, almost everybody disagrees with me. I'm not trying to come over as an authority, but I, I have carefully you know, gotten to my position. Um, so I believe that if patent and copyrights are here at all, they're here to serve the public good, not because they're, we're respecting individual rights. Um, interestingly, that is what our Constitution says that they're here for, too. And our, uh, 
our, a lot of our framers, including I think it was Jefferson, um, did not believe that intellectual property protected individual rights like real property or, or personal property. They said, this is for the public good. We think it's better for society to grant some limited monopolies. Um, in drugs and training materials and lots of other things, um, software and, and other things, we have allowed this to go far in the opposite direction and that raises costs, not just in healthcare, but elsewhere. Um, the Soviet Union with their communist principles did a, did a fascinatingly did a better job of this, at least in principle than we do. I use a music example, um, music and art. Um, they wanted to pay artists for art, but they didn't give them a monopoly. They said a song gets you this much money. And once you perform it and it's recorded, anybody can copy it, distribute it. They just have to collect your money and the bit of the state's money to run the program. And then they can collect whatever money on top of that they want for their own profit. And so there were artists and the artists were being paid, but there were no major music labels, you know, uh, pumping up megastars because they had exclusive rights to that megastars next album. There were no exclusive rights for distributors. Um, and so there, there are a variety of ways in which patent and copyright need to be retaken if they're gonna be a public good. Um, personally, I, I don't think they're justifiable at all and I would abolish them. The total net effect on costs, I don't know, you know, a drug that takes $2 billion to, to produce, maybe that wouldn't get produced. But maybe our universities would go back to being the, you know, powerful centers of development and innovation that they used to be because people donated their entire estates over, you know, two, three, four, five hundred years and lots of charitable money, essentially charitable money pooled in these things and prestige and, and you know, innovations followed and society produced rather than, than the state or rather than a designer economy. Um, so, um, I want, sorry to interrupt, uh, you, you were on a very- No, we don't have a lot of time left. I'm just gonna hit you with your favorite one here, Chad. I'm gonna roll around. <laughs> Finally, I <laughs> would legalize organ sales. And this is both before and after death. Um, people can sell a kidney and use that to fund something if they want, because they own their damn kidney and nobody can convince me otherwise. And what somebody else might do doesn't change that. Um, somebody might get pressured to donate something that isn't really donated and they might be in an abusive relationship and the money doesn't even go to them. That doesn't mean that I don't own my kidney or Brett doesn't own his kidney. And the, the government, if it wants to stop that problem, which is a problem, needs to do its job and find and prosecute that crime not tell everyone take your kidneys and go home because if anybody's going to abuse it nobody can do it that's corporal punishment it's injustice and the government needs to do the actual job rather than shut the playground down um additionally after death um you know and then this helps the poorest people in society the poorest people in society have bodies that start off as healthy as the rest of us those are valuable bodies, they have valuable parts, and they do not need to be donated. And today, not enough are donated because there's nothing in it for anybody. And there's even horror stories about, you know, abuse of the donation system and so forth. A lot of people just don't check the box. Um, I don't know what, you know, those bodies are potentially worth, but um, 
people could get cash today for signing up to donate to companies that were willing to give them cash today if they were in an accident or died of certain diseases. And uh, those would essentially become, um, you know, organ trusts in, in, in flux that, that were known to come available at certain rates and were available for transplants. And I mean, we would have more organs. The people to whom those organs actually belonged would be paid for them. And that could change lives, especially on the lower end of the economic spectrum. But for me, this is less, far less about the outcomes and far more about the fact that if people own anything, I believe they utterly own their body. And I just, I see no leeway here for any restrictions. And, and you know, I'm, not that it affects this, but I'm, I'm for assisted suicide and so forth, right, rights to assisted suicide as well. So, um, yeah, there's so much there that uh, I want to discuss because <laughs> I think that that idea of organ sales is, is fascinating. I think I generally be opposed to it for a variety of reasons that I don't think we have time to expand on. Shocked. Um, Shocked. <laughs> um, but uh, um, I did want to go back to the question of, of copyright and patent. Um, and, and, and specifically because you're a software developer and ask you and Brett a question, um, you know, uh, one of the things that, um, that healthcare is spending the most on currently is electronic health records. I mean, we spend an unbelievable amount of money um, on, on electronic health records. Part of that's probably related, related to HIPAA and the protection, which... Um, you know, let's just leave that alone. But, um, but the intellectual property piece is also something that contributes, I think, to some degree to that cost of, of electronic health records and, and, and also contributes to which ones are better than others. Um, and obviously, the, generally, the ones that are, are better performing, uh, more efficient for, for providers and nurses and a better experience are more expensive. Uh, at least that's been my experience. Um, and so how would you, on a practical level, uh, allow for um, the companies that create uh, better electronic health records or better software in general um, to continue to do so, which to some degree is related to their ability to retain the copyright or patent um, you know, for the code? Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm curious a little bit on the specifics of that because I think, uh, that, that would be a challenge for, for those companies that do provide, um, you know, software. Um, I'll take a, the, the, the quick step at the software answer. You'd probably never run, have seen that code on your premises. If it weren't for intellectual property, it'd be run on the server somewhere. You'd still use it, but nobody would have access to the source code with that company and they would be in contracts with a lot of people recreating parts of intellectual property law, saying, look, if somebody does rip off our software and hand it to you, you still can't run it. We need that agreement from you, right? And it wouldn't have the same support. And when, you know, it, um, for a lot of the software that you're thinking of, it wouldn't be a big issue. You can hide that code on servers and all, all day long, and you can obfuscate it in a bunch of ways. And it's, it's not hard to take it and kind of see how it works, but to take it and run it, and extend it and support it is darn near impossible. Um, but there probably would be some areas of code that became untenable 
in the way that their businesses currently operate. And a very likely outcome to that would just be open source software. I mean, it's hard to look at the landscape nowadays and pretend like open source software is secondary um, in, 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 uh, to paid software in vast areas. And if players with significant money like hospitals and, and universities and so forth are properly incentivized and don't have all the same options for prepackaged shrink wrap software, uh, they would very likely just get more involved in, in, in being parts of organizations that wrote open source versions or shared versions. And, uh, you know, that stuff has slowly taken over several industries. So it's hardly something to be scared of. Yeah. And I think that, that that's exactly what I was going to bring up was our learning management system where I work, um, which is not an area that I have management over, but our learning management system is open source. And then the, and and I've seen other organizations that use this same platform and it's incredible. I mean, it is as good as any of the like big box um, programs that, that people are using. Um, it, you know, at Gonzaga where I went to school, our learning, we use Blackboard and our learning management system was very, very useful. Um, it, it's, it's the money being put in to the developers or so that the developers can customize and personalize that software for our organization. And we just don't have people that are incentivized to be able to do that really well. Um, so everybody kind of has the same basic ingredients. Um, we just don't really have a chef that another organization has. And, and that chef is paid quite well by that organization to make sure that the learning management system is, is kept up. And, and to some, some degree, I think the same could be true of our EHR. Um, but I also know like in Ethan's kind of framework, there'd be so many things that our EMR wouldn't need us to do because there wouldn't be, you know, you have to review, um, you have to review the medication allergies, problem lists, um, and histories for every patient. And we need to make you a big button that will let you do that at the front screen. Well, we know you haven't, you haven't even opened the patient's chart yet, but we have a button for you to be able to review the histories, medications, allergies, and problems for that patient. And so now there's all this money that's going into design that big, beautiful button that wouldn't need to be there. Um, so. Yeah, there's a lot there. I think that we could unpack Ethan in your, in your propositions. Now, um, do you guys think, have, have I, because I haven't like drawn the conclusion in a very detailed fashion how this is going to lower costs. I don't know how obvious that is. To me, it's dreadfully obvious that a huge stratification of medicine would, would happen. And the stuff at the bottom wouldn't necessarily be bad quality. It would just be provided cheaper. And it would have a very different experience. Um, but how, how well do you, what do you think that this lengthy list of proposals uh, the effect it would have on cost. Do you see this being a benefit, at least in that sense? Because I know you see risks to it and, and, and things that you don't like. You see pluses. I, I think for me, it's the, it would be the chaos of the transition that would be, that would be the challenge. <laughs> chaos. And, and we're, not, I, we're not very used to, as consumers, we're very ill-prepared for this world. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, sure. I love the idea, of, or I love what some of these will provide, but I, I guess it's kind of like asking me, like we, we decided we were all gonna talk about our favorite kinds of apples and you brought an orange to the conversation, which is your favorite thing to eat um, and is, is 
really good, but I don't know enough about oranges to be able to talk about why that makes a good apple. Um, because it's so different than what we've, what we've experienced up till now. So Ethan, I will say that I think your, um, your, uh, your system would definitely cut costs. I don't know to, to what degree. Um, I don't, again, going back to the um, cost of, of healthcare is unaffordable for some, I would say the cost of healthcare is unaffordable for many. Um, and I don't know that this would solve that. To go back to you know, the catastrophic conditions of say you need coronary artery bypass surgery or you-, you Well, you need so I, I, I absolutely would want insurance. Um, in, in this world, and and one of my points was freeing up the kinds of insurance that, that can exist and, and allowing cross jurisdictional purchases. Um, yeah, so, I think that's one of the things that the Interstate Commerce Clause is in our Constitution for. It's not to let the federal government regulate all these industries. It's actually to keep the states from competing with one another in all these industries um, by granting special you know things so that companies come there or letting their company behave in ways that preys on a neighboring state or something and one of the ways that i think that, that can be used to help the citizenry is to say washington doesn't get to own ethan's healthcare market mm. Ethan lives in washington not not to get washington beating people away with a stick when they want to offer him products on a voluntary basis Ethan gets to buy healthcare from Yugoslavia or California or the Caribbean or Canada if he wants to. Um, and we'd see innovation in, 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 in insurance. Um, and, and since there would be a greater stratification of care provision um, from things provided a lot more cheaper with less privacy and less paperwork and possibly less care, possibly worse outcomes, there would similarly be more you know cheaper insurance is available too because they, they weren't going to provide as much or yeah. they were going to be more authoritarian in what they told you you got yeah yeah so so i think that um my so if you grant that there's going to be some form of insurance in this type of world um i still don't know that that would make that insurance affordable for many because, uh, and, and probably the bigger concern to me with this overall plan would be the health equity piece. Because I really think that you would have significant disparities in health equity um, based on the level of complexity that insurance companies would write into their contracts. Um, and, and, you know, we have, um, you know, a fairly overall limited number of, of healthcare uh, or insurance options as far as you know, they are required to um, provide certain levels of care. Uh, and if, if, you know, it seems to me like in your model, there would be an elimination of what they would be required to offer. They would be allowed to offer whatever essentially they want. And so um, you would have situations where people would think they were being covered for certain things and would not be. And that would uh, likely affect people that are at a lower educational level uh, disproportionately, um, which, you know, I think would have significantly affect health equity. So that would be, I think, my primary concern. I, I you know, and, and, and that also goes to the organ sales. Um, we don't have time to get into all of that, but I think that that would be the primary piece of that would, that would concern me. You're saying, let me put that in a nutshell. You're saying healthcare 
is a very sophisticated environment. Yeah. I wouldn't say it doesn't even have to be as complex. sophisticated as it is today. <laughs> but it's, I mean, there are sophisticated, there are complex choices to be made, and so on and so forth. And the individual in my system is going to have to deal with that in a broader way than they do today because there are fewer constraints. You know, the the, the yeah. seatbelt is taken off, and mm -hmm. they're not all going to be able to do that. Brett mentioned they're certainly not all going to be able to day one. And you're saying that there's going to be um, there's going to be a stratification of you know socioeconomic uh, results and everything because uh, it's hard for unsophisticated uh, people or people who don't have time or people who don't have options because they don't have money to deal with a complex and sophisticated marketplace and they're going to get screwed. Yeah, and I, I would not call like my uh, I would not call healthcare sophisticated or insurance sophisticated. It's it's just overwhelmingly complex. Um, and 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 uh, like you said, that that um, relates to uh, may not even relate to necessarily educational level or literacy level or you know things like that. But it may relate to time. It may relate to expertise. It may be able to relate to the ability to hire expertise. Um, and I think that would, you know, disproportionately affect those at the lower socioeconomic levels. Okay. I want to know so, if organ uh, sales are going to be taxed at capital gains rates or how is the government going to make their money off of organ sales? Well, you know, you know, the, the joke I gave is that if you actually made organ sales legal upon death, right after death, that the IRS is going to say you owe them the tax on the organs, whether you sell them or not. There you go. <laughs> yeah, if you choose to just let them rot, that's up to you. But we get we get twenty one percent. So <laughs> oh, that's um, brilliant. No, I actually think it's a pretty darn good. Uh, uh, you know, it would be a good thing to not tax. Yeah, I think it would I, be a tax. But you could you could tax it somewhat to pay for the system that was going to protect the people that engaged in that market. And, you know, that might not be the complete libertarian thing, but it's certainly the sort of the thing that if that's the only kind of stuff we did, I wouldn't even have, I would never have known I was a libertarian um, <laughs> because I wouldn't have seen a world that locked things down five times as much as it needed to. I would have been like, I would have been uninterested in whether it was just to tax organ sales, you know, uh, hmm. So I, I wouldn't I wouldn't bat an eye at that not not from where we stand today. It would be like the opposite of a consumption tax. It would be like a an an consumption tax. An consumption tax. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Well, well, it's been a fascinating discussion. Um, yeah. I don't think we solved anything, but <laughs> it was interesting to hear. Washington will be disappointed we didn't fix this today on our one hour and 45 minute podcast. <laughs> so um, maybe someone will find it and think we did. There we go. <laughs> maybe. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see uh, if people have thoughts on, on what our various proposals are. <laughs>